You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. If you have your Bible or your ESV scripture journal, will you grab that and go with me to Luke chapters 4 and 5. Luke chapters 4 and 5. And if you're with us today and you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one. On those tables in the back of the room, you'll find stacks of Bibles. Take one now. Take one on your way out of worship today. That's our gift to you. We'll look at a number of passages this morning contained in Luke 4 and 5, but I want to read for us Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 37 to get us started. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? We stand during this time uh, to show our reverence and our readiness. We truly believe this is God's Word and we are eager to hear from Him today. At the end of the reading, I will say, this is the Word of the Lord, and I invite you to respond, thanks be to God. Listen carefully to these words in Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 37. And when he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus, Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out and reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We are continuing in our study of Luke's gospel, the once and future king, a journey with Jesus. Last week in Luke 4, the beginning of Luke 4, we looked at the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Before Jesus begins his earthly ministry, he must face the devil, an evil intelligence, the leader, the primeval leader of all rebellion against God and God's plan and God's people. And as we looked at that story last week, we saw that as Jesus overcomes the temptation, overcomes the devil, he not only shows us how we can overcome the temptation that certainly will come our way, but even greater, Jesus shows us that he is the one who will defeat the tempter himself. He is the king who one day will vanquish all evil. He is the once and future king, the king of all kings. This will be reiterated in the passage that we'll be studying today. After that scene in the wilderness, Jesus goes to Nazareth, his hometown. And it's here that he's going to launch, begin his public ministry, his earthly ministry. He goes into the synagogue... He opens a scroll and he reads a passage from Isaiah. And in this passage, we find a summary of Jesus' ministry. Jesus reads these words recorded in Luke 4, verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
for roughly three years, Jesus will walk the earth. His ministry is composed of basically three things. For these three years, Jesus devotes himself to three tasks. Healing of a variety of kinds, teaching through sermons and stories, and gathering a community of followers. In the weeks ahead, we'll look at each of those components. Today, we're going to focus on Jesus' healing ministry. And there are a number of healing episodes recorded in Luke 4 and 5. We'll look at just three of them. Those of you who know me well, you know that probably my favorite book, one of my favorite books for sure, is The Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. And at the end of that book, there is one of the greatest scenes, I think, in all of literature. All of literature. There's a scene where Samwise Gamgee is reunited with Gandalf. They've been separated for a long time during the battle as the battle has waged on, but now the battle has been won. The darkness has been defeated. Samwise wakes up. He awakes. He sees Gandalf, and he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but I thought I was dead myself. Are all sad things going to come untrue? What has happened to the world? Now, if we take that question to the Bible, if we take that question to Jesus, is everything sad going to come untrue? If we take that question to Jesus, Jesus' answer is yes. Everything sad will come untrue. Something has happened to the world. I've happened to the world. See, this is why Jesus came. Jesus came so that all sad things can come untrue. We'll look today at three stories of sad things coming untrue. Three characters. We'll meet a demonized man. That sounds a little freaky, doesn't it? A demonized man. A socially ostracized man and a paralyzed man. So those are the three stories. First, a demonized man. Look again at the story I just read. Chapter 4, verse 31. And Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. He's not like other teachers. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus, Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him, the man, down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. Now remember where we are in Luke's gospel. Jesus has just come out of the wilderness. He's just had the face-off with the devil. So it's fitting that the very first miracle Luke records in his gospel is a battle with a demon, one of Satan's underlings. This is another evil intelligence, but of lesser importance, lesser status. Now, this first story is by far the strangest of the three we'll look at today. So we need to spend a little more time on it. There are a number of questions we need to think through here, matters we need to sort out. We're going to start a bit wider with the spiritual realm in general, and we're going to narrow to this particular man and what happened to him on this day. The first question we need to consider is, why does Jesus encounter so many demonized people? Have you ever wondered about this? 
If you read the Gospels, you might walk away with the impression that in the ancient world, there was a demon under every rock. There was a demon in every bush. What's that all about? Here's something that's telling. In the entire Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, there's not a single unequivocal case of a demonization or an exorcism. Not one. And once we get beyond the Gospels and the book of Acts, there's not a single reference to demonization or exorcism in the rest of the New Testament. In the Bible, it's only, it's only when Jesus walks the earth that we have all of these demons. Why is that? What's happening? Here's the way J.I. Packer answers the question. In his book, Concise Theology, Packer says this, the level and intensity of demonic manifestations in people during Christ's ministry was unique, having no parallel in the Old Testament times or since. It was doubtless part of Satan's desperate battle for his kingdom against Christ's attack on it. What happens when you kick the anthill? Suddenly you see ants everywhere. Suddenly you see ants everywhere. Jesus is the boot. He has come to destroy the works of the devil. He has come to defeat all of the devil's entourage. And so we see demons running, scattering everywhere because Jesus is on the scene. That's why we see so many demonization stories in the Gospels. Now, here's a second question. What can demons do to people? That's a very relevant question, isn't it? What can demons do to us? You've probably heard the term demon-possessed, right? But to be honest with you and tell you, I don't like that term. I don't like it at all because I think it gives way too much credit to the demon. I think it attributes too much power to the demon. I think the better and more biblical term is the one I'm using here, demonized or perhaps demon-inhabited. See, in the Gospels, it's never the case that a demon possesses a person, meaning takes full ownership of that person. No, in the Gospels, it's always painted in such a way that the demon is a trespasser, a usurper, a squatter. The demon is temporarily living in a space that does not belong to him. He doesn't own that person. He's a squatter, a trespasser. But the New Testament is clear that demons can harass and hinder and oppress people in a number of ways. Here are a few examples from Luke's gospel. It seems that demons can hinder people mentally. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus meets a man named Legion who had many demons and who for a long time had worn no clothes and lived among the tombs. Not exactly sane behavior, right? It also seems that demons can hinder people physically. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus meets a boy who's been seized by a spirit and is suffering from convulsions and foaming at the mouth. In Luke 11, a demon seems to be the cause of a man's inability to speak. And perhaps the clearest of all, in Luke 13, 
Jesus frees a woman from a disabling spirit. That's exactly how Luke refers to the demon. A disabling spirit that for 18 years caused this woman to be bent over, unable to stand upright. Now, if that frightens you, keep listening. Because though all of that is true, there is not a single suggestion in the New Testament that a believer can be inhabited by a demon. Not a suggestion. In fact, in 1 John 4, 4, John says explicitly, he who is in you, believer, he who is in you, meaning the Holy Spirit, is greater than he who is in the world, the devil and his demons. So if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have no reason to fear Demons cannot inhabit you. You know why? Because you're with Jesus, and Jesus is the boot. Remember? He came to scatter the ants. He came to slay the dragon, to crush the serpents. And you're with him. So can the devil and his entourage tempt us? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But can they inhabit us? No. No. So... That's why there are so many demonization stories in the Gospels. That's what demons can do to people. Now, third question, most important, what can Jesus do to the demons? What can Jesus do to the demons? And that's what we see here in this story. He shows up, he meets the man who who has a demon, and that's the language we often see in the New Testament. A person has a demon, and the demon speaks. Jesus, have you come to destroy us? Have you come to destroy us? Now, it's difficult to tell here in the text if the demon is truly afraid and he's panicking or if this is some sort of mockery. Or maybe it's the sort of trash talk that's a cover-up for no game. You know, a lot of bark, no bite. There is indeed a lot of bark and no bite because, look, all Jesus has to do is speak. All he has to do is speak. Jesus rebuked, saying, Be silent, demon, come out of him. It's an authoritative word. It's power that must be obeyed. The king has spoken, and the demon runs. The man is left unharmed, healed, and once again, evil has been defeated. You see, with Jesus, with Jesus, everything sad will come untrue. That's the first story. The second one is not about a demonized man, but a socially ostracized man. Jumping to chapter 5 now. So turn over to chapter 5, picking up in verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will. Be clean. And immediately, the leprosy left him. Now, to understand the magnitude of this miracle, we must understand the severity of the disease. Luke tells us that this man was full of leprosy. That is, he had a skin disease. He was, in the ancient world, a walking corpse. Let me tell you what I mean. A man with leprosy in the ancient world was considered to be impure. And he was cast out of society. 
He was cut off from the entire community because his impurity could spread to others. So no one would have anything to do with this man. No one would have anything to do with a dead body because the thought was that the impurity of the dead body might somehow transfer to others. No one would have anything to do with a leper because they thought the impurity of the leper might spread to the rest of the community. This man was living life as a walking corpse until he meets Jesus. He meets Jesus. And this story is different. Do you see how? In the first story, the one we just read, how did Jesus heal the demonized man? By speaking, right? Interestingly, in every healing story in Luke's gospel, every one, the healing will come either by Jesus speaking or Jesus touching. The idea is you can't have healing apart from the healer. Jesus is the one who brings the healing. Now, in the previous story, he simply spoke. And he could have done that here. We know he could have done that here because back at the end of chapter 4, there's another healing story. We don't have time to look at it in detail this morning. But in that story, Jesus rebukes the disease. He heals the person simply by speaking, but not here, not here. Here, he touches the leper. Why? It's the touch of embrace. It's the touch of of his care, his love. Jesus touches the untouchable one. Jesus cures a disease that was considered incurable. Jesus extends his hand towards this man, this walking corpse. It makes sense then. Then in this story, it's not referred to as a healing. It's a cleansing. The man is cleansed of his impurity so that he can reintegrate into society. He can be brought back to the community. This is a physical healing, yes, but it's also a communal healing. This man's relationships have now been restored all because of Jesus. Believer, I hope you see a picture in this story of what God has done with you. No, you didn't have leprosy. But you and I, we were filthy in our sin. Filthy in our sin. And Jesus, knowing everything there is to know about us, knowing our secrets, the ones that not even your spouse knows, not even your best friend knows, Jesus knows all of that. And he doesn't turn his face away in disgust. No, he extends his hands your way. The touch of embrace. He says, I will make you clean. Whatever you've done, I will make you clean. With Jesus, everything sad comes untrue. He does it again. Third and finally, there's the demonization. There's this man, the socially ostracized man. Also in chapter 5, there's a story of a paralyzed man. Bit of a longer story. We'll break this one up into three parts. Verse 17, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst 
before Jesus. So by this time in Luke 5, these stories of Jesus' teaching and his healing power, the stories have spread. He has quite a reputation. So on this day, Jesus is teaching in the context of someone's home. We don't know whose home it is, but we do know, Luke tells us, there's an enormous crowd there. We're talking Disney World on Christmas Day crowd. You cannot even get into the house. Meanwhile, a group of friends who have a paralyzed man who's in their circle of friends, they decide to carry the paralyzed man, who knows how far, carry him to the house where Jesus is, hoping that Jesus will be able to do something for their paralyzed friend. They arrive at the house only to realize they can't get in. The crowd is too thick. They can't make their way through the door. But these men, (laughs) these men are tenacious and they're resourceful. They do not give up easily. At this moment, nothing matters more to these men than getting their friend to Jesus. Nothing matters more. They can't go through the crowd, so they go above it. They climb onto the roof. Now, imagine being there this day when the leader of the group, whoever he is, first formulates this plan, right? Guys, bring it in. Bring it in real close. I got an idea. See that house over there? We know Jesus is in there. We don't know whose house it is, but let's pray he's a nice guy because here's what we're going to do. First, We're going to walk around on his roof, totally uninvited. Then, we're going to destroy the roof. And then the climax of it all, we're going to drop our friend into the middle of Jesus' talk right as he's turning into that powerful conclusion. So just get ready, here we go. These men, that's some tenacity, right? That's some creativity. But you know what? It works. They get on the roof, they lower their friend in, and so there he is, right in front of Jesus. And here's what happens. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees, all the religious people who were there that day, they began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So Jesus sees their faith. All of these men believed that Jesus could do something that no one else could do. They had faith in him. Jesus sees that faith. He looks to the paralyzed man and he says, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Probably not what the paralyzed man was expecting, right? But you see, here's the thing about Jesus. He loves to give us more than we're expecting. Man, your sins are forgiven. The religious leaders overhear this, and they take offense. They consider this to be blasphemy. Now, blasphemy, that was a serious accusation. To blaspheme, that was to attack God's name, his character. They think that Jesus is attacking the majesty of God by claiming to have a power that belongs to God alone. Who can forgive sins But God alone, they say. And you know what? They're exactly right. They're exactly right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So here's what Jesus does next. He decides to show them the power that he has. He decides to show them that he is God in the flesh. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, 
He answered them, why do you question? Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? But that you may know, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and he went home glorifying God. If you had been there that day, if you had been there that day, what would it have taken to persuade you? If you were skeptical about Jesus' identity, what would it have taken to persuade you that he truly is divine? See, Jesus says he has the power to forgive sins, but that's not really verifiable, is it? That's not something we can see with hard evidence, not here and now. So Jesus decides to demonstrate his power to demonstrate his divinity in a way that people can see it with their own eyes. He looks to this paralyzed man and he says, rise. And this same man who only moments ago needed multiple people to carry him and to lower him down through the roof, this same man stands up. And notice that Jesus doesn't just say rise. He says, get up, get your own mat and walk out of here. That's something that healthy people do. Carry your own mat, strap it on your back, and walk out. This is a complete healing. Jesus shows us that he is God, and therefore he is the one who can forgive our sins. See, this final story teaches us that our greatest need, it's not physical healing. Our greatest need is the forgiveness of sin. Sin is what separates us from God, our creator. Sin is what separates us from others. It's what ruins our relationships. The greatest need you have is not your physical healing. It's your forgiveness of sins. That's what you need. That's what I need. And that's what Jesus can bring us. But here's the thing about this story. It's this story that is the beginning of the controversy that will lead to Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion. It's this charge of blasphemy that will follow Jesus throughout the remainder of Luke's gospel until in the end he's crucified. That's significant, and here's what I want you to see. It's significant because it's Jesus himself being willing to suffer, being willing to be rejected. That is what it takes for us to be forgiven. In this story, he shows us that he is God. He shows us that he does have the power to forgive sins, but how will our sins be forgiven? Jesus must go to the cross. For all the suffering in your life, in mine, for all the suffering in the world to be undone, Jesus himself must suffer. For all the spiritual darkness to be overcome for good and all, Jesus must go to the darkest place of all, the cross. And there at the cross, he defeats all the powers of evil. There at the cross, he shows that he is the king. The king of all kings, the one who will vanquish all evil with Jesus. And only with Jesus. Everything sad will indeed come untrue. That is the hope of the gospel. Rest in that today.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for these stories that you've recorded in your word for us and kept through the ages for us to study on a morning like this. I know there are many of us who are struggling with many, many things today. Physical illness, mental illness, all sorts of pain and suffering. These stories show us that one day all those sad things will come untrue. Jesus' death and resurrection and one day his return to complete his plan for the world, it means that one day all the suffering will be gone. Thank you for that, God. Thank you for your sacrifice, Jesus. Your crucifixion in our place for our sins, your resurrection that shows you are victorious over all. As we live here and now, in the already but not yet, where Jesus has been crucified and raised, but he's not yet returned to complete that plan, God, give us the grace we need, the strength we need to keep facing the challenges that come our way, to keep fighting the temptations that come our way, all the while looking to you, Jesus, the once the future king. Amen.